I'm dealing with a faith crisis, not mine, but many of the people around me who are like, why is my church doing this? Why yeah. are they they telling my grandma that she can't have a medicine that she needs? And so I'm having to be like, no, 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 don't, don't leave the church over this. Don't lose your testimony over this. These are just people doing what they think is right, but they're wrong and that's okay. You know, we can't have church leaders who make mistakes and do things wrong. But again, our church culture doesn't really support that nuance. Sure. So I'm having to have just tons of these conversations with people who see me as this very public person in Utah as, well, wait a minute, <clears throat> he's the guy fighting the church publicly, but he's a faithful church member. Mm-hmm. So I've got people like calling my bishop and reporting me for opposing sure. the church. And he messaged the stake president. He's like, what do I do with this? And the stake president was like, eh, just ignore it. You know, so they're they're copacetic. They're, you know, they're good guys. It's time for another episode of The Cultural Hall, and welcoming in for this episode is Connor Boyack. Now, some of you go, oh, no, this is where this episode is going. I know what Connor is. Freedom fighter, according to his website, Connor Boyack. Is that what we're doing here, Richie? Where are we going? Now, let me just couch it like this. I am excited to learn more about Connor to find out what he stands for, what he believes in, and what he thinks is is worth the fight as it were. He also is a publisher of multiple podcasts and books as well. Connor, welcome in. Thanks for having me. I'm excited. Now, uh, I hope that that intro was fair. Uh, There are probably some people who associate your name with certain things and go, okay, what what are we doing here? And probably first and foremost, libertarian, I would presume. Sure. Yeah, no, I I definitely, uh, when you draw lines in the sand, it, it divides people. Christ himself said, you know, I didn't come to bring peace, but a sword and, you know, set families asunder. And uh, so, no, uh, what I do, I have my my lovers and my haters. And frankly, I just welcome discussion and debate and let's talk through ideas. Uh, so I especially love interacting with people who don't necessarily agree with me and hashing it out and having fun. Sure. And I think that there's a way to do it. And I hope we do it the way that, you know, that we were instructed in the most recent general conference <laughs> to be able to learn about uh, one another and have those those disagreements. Um, but it doesn't, you know, it doesn't create contention, all of those kind of things. I think that for some people, though, uh, they sort of have this, um, oh, I don't know what you would call it, maybe just uh, like surface level understanding of what a libertarian even is like for example i'll i'll, I'll tell you i i feel like it's like yeah just leave me alone and let me do my own thing and i'll be fine that's sort of how i summarize a libertarian how do you or how does the party or you know what is, give me an idea of what a libertarian is if people have no idea yeah so I, i'm not a member of the libertarian party i've got uh-huh. all kinds of thoughts about the ineffectiveness or or effectiveness <laughs> of that uh institution and that process uh, but philosophically, I am what you would call a libertarian. I would define it as someone who uh, believes in maximum individual freedom, not to take your ball and go home and be selfish in kind of the Ayn Rand Atlas shrug perception that some people have, mm-hmm. but more that like it's acting versus being acted upon. I don't want to be, which we get from second Nephi, right? I don't want to be acted upon. I want to be able to act. I want maximum freedom and keeping my money and and, and retaining my agency so that I can be anxiously engaged in many causes. And and when the government is restricting you or when they're taking your money and telling you what to do, it diminishes your capacity to act. So for me, it's a question of maximum freedom. I have maximum agency um, and act to benefit my life, my family's life, the lives of others. Um, And on a spectrum between, you know, maximum freedom and limited government versus on the other end, you've got maximum government and, uh, you know, limited freedom. 
Um, you know, I'm very much on the spectrum of maximum freedom. Many people will say, well, what about the social safety net? What about welfare? What about taking care of people? Sure. Sure. Um, all valid things. What a lib- libertarian would say is that the marketplace is better able to handle that than the inefficiency of the government. Um, and that the speculative fear that like people will die in the streets if we don't have a big welfare state is not borne out by history. And, uh, and you know, we wouldn't let happen in the present and, and, and in the future. Um, but it, it's all trade-offs. And ultimately, libertarian says the best trade-off is maximum freedom, maximum human flourishing, empower people to do what they want, be creative, be innovative, be uh, productive and, and create wealth. And that is a rising tide that lifts all boats. One of the things that I appreciate so much about um, our faith is sort of the freedom, even though people would say, oh, uh, you know, members of the church, at least in the state of Utah, are sort of pushed towards the Republican Party, right? That's the big joke, like, you know, how many Democrats are in Utah County? It's you and that's it, you know, that kind of thing. Um, but But one of the things that I find so beautiful and also sometimes so frustrating is that you know, as a member of the church who holds certain political beliefs, and I'll look at someone who is sort of dynamically opposite of me, and I'll think, how is it that that person can worship and follow the same thing and believe what they can believe? And I'm sure that they, or the equivalent of them on the other side, would look at me and go, I can't believe that. Um, Is there danger because you did this a couple of times as you were kind of talking about it, when we start to assign scriptures to the way that we believe that it it, it sort of postures us as like, a, you know, some sort of superiority, you know, I'm just doing as the Ten Commandments say, kind of throwing that. That's God's on my it. side, not your yeah, side. Yeah, exactly. Thing, right? There There yeah. is some danger in that. Do you think so? I, I think there's danger. I think there's nuance, but also I think we have to try. Like the whole point of scripture is to be applied in not just theoretical, abstract talk and gospel doctrine and conceptual vague term, mm-hmm. you know, approaches, but like the nitty gritty daily, what does this mean? I, I don't believe in a gospel of, you know, of the Sabbath where we go to church and we put our church hat on, we go home, we take our church hat off, and then we just do whatever we want and act in whatever ways we want. I think the gospel ultimately is an instruction manual for daily living, and therefore it's an imperative to figure out how to apply those scriptures to, to the nitty-gritty. There will be disagreement. I mean, the apostles, early apostles couldn't, you know, agree with each other. And Jesus spoke in parables that had different levels of understanding for, you know, people at different times. So I think we have to be compassionate and charitable with people who may disagree with us. I don't think it's a, you know, scripture Pokemon card where it's like, well, I have a general authority that says this. And so I beat your general authority card. Um, I, I don't think it should be weaponized or combative, but I do think we need to learn from the best books, as DNC says. We need to counsel together. We need to learn together. I think we, I think we have to try. It's going to be messy. Uh, we're going to have disagreement, but uh, but I think there's joy in the journey, and I think that's the whole point of of these revelations in Scripture is to help us work through it in that kind of very daily practical sense and figure out how to apply those Scriptures to to daily living. I like the idea of uh, spiritual Pokemon cards. That was sort of funny to me. And I and I see that play out on the internet, right? Like, oh, I heard this talk at a fireside and, and that supplements the way that I believe. And then I share that and someone goes, oh, no, no, no. And then they share it. And then what seemed like for a good long time, the kind of, um, you know, the, the superior Pokemon card was, well, Ezra Taft Benson said, and then we sort of lay that card and we're like, prophet, and you even see that sort of being referenced, like I said, in that most re- uh, most recent general conference where they're like, hey, guys, first of all, it's, you know, 
we're we're dealing, we're loving, we're getting to know each other, and there will be disagreements, but also too, like we don't weaponize the words of past prophets. I thought that to be extremely um powerful for for both the left, the right, the middle, the you know, all those kind of sides. So you're speaking about Elder Haney. Uh, I actually plan to do a podcast episode. I have a podcast called Sunday Musings, where I just kind of share my thoughts on religious uh, freedom, political kind of stuff. And so my intention right now is that Sundays is going to be about this exact talk that you bring up. I've got the quote right here. Mm -hmm. uh, Elder Haney says, unlike vintage comic books and classic cars, prophetic teachings do not become more valuable with age. That's why we should not seek to use the words of past prophets to dismiss the teachings of living prophets. And then he had the water bottle example. Followed sure. Like, so I, I actually quibble with this a little bit. I don't know that I entirely agree with what he said. I, I think of Jesus saying, you know, search these things, a commandment I give unto you to search these things diligently, greater the words of Isaiah. We know that, you know, John and Nephi and these others have seen everything, the brother of Jared, uh, you know, and, and, and true prophecy, I think, uh, does get better with age in the sense that you see it come true and you see the early wisdom of it. And so I don't know that I love this idea about discarding the past just because we have living prophets, both for that reason, but also I reject the idea that we should crush. I mean, I know it was kind of meant in a little bit of jest, but like, mm -hmm. like we see this in our church culture, like follow the prophet in a very literal sense. A lot of people struggled with, you know, when President Nelson said, hey, uh, you know, get vaccinated, it's safe and effective and, and do all this. And a lot of people were like, well, wait a minute, like my doctor says something different, or I have this health circumstance that puts me at higher risk or whatever. And people were having to grapple with, well, wait a minute, because he said it, does that mean it's prophetic? And mm -hmm. as a church culture, I think we err very much on the side of whatever President Nelson or his predecessors say is prophetic because they're a prophet. Yet we have right. Joseph Smith, Again, here I come with my spiritual Pokemon card or sure. uh, referencing an early, early prophet. Uh, heaven forbid I, I bring back Joseph into the conversation. But he said a, a prophet is only a prophet when acting as such. There were people who were questioning it, all his different activities, the banking decisions he was making, the family decisions. He's like, no, I, I'm only a prophet when I'm like directly acting. That. So I, I think we as a church culture, uh, we, we err on the side of just assuming that what our leaders tell us to do is prophetic and therefore from God. And I think that's spiritually lazy. I think that that inhibits us from developing our spiritual capacity, seeking out the spirit of discernment, trying to understand things. And so I get why people go down that path of least resistance, because it is easy to just assume, oh, let's do what we're told. Yep. Um, I just don't think that creates a, a healthy church community and, and strong saints who uh, have a connection themselves to God through the spirit. I think they just, oh, I just do what I'm told and I'm along for the ride. Um, I, I don't love that. So I, I, I quibble a little bit with what Elder Haney is saying here. Sure. I, I get it. I understand what he's trying to do. But but to me, it kind of is a contributor to this this um, church culture we have that I, I have a little bit of an issue with. Yeah, it's it's a struggle for me, too, especially when I see and you hear people call it out. It's just like blind obedience. Right. And I think that people should follow the prophet. So, no, you know, no one take, uh, you know, uh, umbrage with what I'm saying as far as that goes. But but the thing to me is like, if there's something that I struggle with, I, I sort of welcome it both um, religiously speaking or like, you know, relationally with my spouse or something like that. How easy is it if I just go to my wife and say, what do you want me to do so this will be okay? Right. You know, ah, do the dishes and uh, go wash the car. Okay, I'll do that. That's easy. That's great. Sure, you bet. How much harder is it if she says, you know what, I want this to feel different and I want you to figure it out 
and then come yeah. back to me and I go, oh, oh, you mean like actually learn something from this so we don't just do this again and I find myself in the same position? And it, it really is. And we find that time and time again with various things within the church. Word of wisdom is one that comes to mind where we go, yeah, you bet. I'll do that. I'll do that. I'll do that. Okay. There's like, a, there's, there's more parts of this that maybe we're not living. No, nope. I am. I did the this and the this and the this. We, we love to make fun of the Pharisees. We love uh -huh. to think of them as these, you know, just ignorant rubes. How, how could you encumber the gospel with all these, you know, practices and, and so forth. And yet, as you're describing right there, we are, we are the same. They're human. We're human. We want to reduce these complex, mentally taxing, uh, spiritually difficult processes down to a checklist uh, that we can do. I, it's why I love that we've moved away from home teaching to ministering, although mm -hmm. I think the ministering program is a disaster. Very few people do it because sure. it requires us, myself included, struggle to like do something more meaningful and, and pay attention and invest time and energy. That's what we should be doing, but we have a hard time with that, especially in our distracted society. Um, and so we we are a people who love our checklists and thou shalt and thou shalt nots. And then we go do whatever else we want because we know that we've, you know, checked the boxes that we feel we need to, to be a Latter-day Saint that has a temple recommend as if that's like the utopian standard. To me, that's a baseline standard of like, okay, you're doing the bare minimum. Now let's talk about how, you know, you can rise above and do more. Yeah. And funny, I think that too, because uh, I, I think I used to kind of ascribe to that, um, that, you know, hierarchy, right? Like, oh, are they keeping their covenants? Do I see them in church? Oh, and they, have they been to the temple? And do they visit the temple and all that stuff? And then I think, you know, I know some really crummy people who have temple recommends. And so it just sort of, it sort of washes it. And I'm like, there's, there's probably something more to all that. For sure. Than just what we see. Do you see a, a, an upswell in uh, members of the church uh, in investigating? I don't know if that's the right word into libertarianism. Is there more curiosity about it now? Uh, is it more appealing towards how some members of the church would feel, or is that a kind of a blanketed wrong statement? Um, that's, a, that's a curious question. I, I would argue, in fact, I have on my wall over here, I, I commissioned this art piece some years ago uh, that on the Deseret News mass head in the early uh, Utah period, and then they even had it in, I think it was the Logan Temple, they created this uh, stained glass kind of motif, and it says, Mormon Creed, mind your own business, saints will observe this, all others ought to. Mm -hmm. And this was very much born out of the polygamy era that John Taylor and others were on the underground, like literally hiding from the government, being sheltered. And, uh, it, you know, there's like a black market basically in Utah. And so there was this, this kind of heritage and culture and ethos of, you know, hey, those people are the enemy. The government didn't protect us. If anything, there were government agents involved in our persecution. Um, let's not trust this of them. Let's do what we ought to and what we feel God wants us to do. Everyone mind your own business. Saints will observe this. All others ought to. So your question is interesting because I might argue that the early Mormons were the most libertarian Mormons that we've had just mm. because of this strong tension between the state. And I, I don't mean like Utah, Texas, Tennessee state, but the state is a, a, a type of government um, that has a, a monopoly of, of force to be able to, to, you know, order people around. And so there's this tension between the state and the people. And I think early Utahns better recognized the dangers of the state and why they needed strong families, strong community to be able to just subsist on their own and not be dependent upon the state and have the state gain control over them. Of course, then everything changed and we got the progressive era. We got the Mitt Romney, the George Romney, all the, all the kind of like, uh, all the American, Romneys. we got all the Romneys, all the Romneys, <laughs> the binder full of Romneys. Yeah. Um, <laughs> 
And uh, and we have what I kind of perceive to be the Americanization of Mormon culture. It's like we wanted to fit in. We wanted to be well liked. Mm-hmm. David O. McKay, right? Here's this guy in this white suit, no longer having a beard. He's trying to like really connect with the culture. And and it makes sense for missionary work to have people want to like you and not think that you're these weird, you know, whatever. Um, but I think, you know, again, to your question, I, I think we d- tried so much to become kind of the Americana that that's when church leaders would, you know, early on, they dissolved the, the people's party in Utah. They assigned members to, you got to be Republican. You got to be Democrat. We want statehood. We got to appease the different political factions. So I, I think we've veered a lot away from that. Uh, you see this nationally with conservatives, this very uh, nationalist strain within Christianity, where you even have evangelical churches with like Trump posters and American flags and this kind of fusion of politics and religion within the church. Um, and, and so I think in, in on the right, you know, conservatives, Republicans, whatever, in the church, I, I think uh, they're not veering more libertarian. I think they're veering a little bit more nationalist, mm. uh, which I, I have a concern with because I think we're all God's children. I think borders are imaginary lines on a map, and I don't think we should be, you know, xenophobic, jingoistic, or exclusionary. So, uh, so no, I, I, I think the, 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 the good old days for libertarian Mormons was probably century and a half ago. Um, but I am one who thinks that our gospel is a, a, a kind of libertarian gospel, that we are not judged collectively, we're judged individually, we're supposed to work out our own salvation. Um, and yes, we have obligations and, and commandments to help and to do things. As I said, I, 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 I guess what you might call an altruistic libertarian and not that kind of more uh selfish one that many people perceive um and so i think there's a lot of compatibility i argue there is i believe there is and i try and live authentically that way but broadly within the church which i think is kind of what you're asking no i, I don't i don't see a trend uh that going way. in that direction you know uh i i would be curious to know too and and some people uh to the point of like forming their own churches have have felt this thing um the social pressures that the church has felt over the years, whether it be polygamy or politically or any of those things. And we're fine to speculate safe space, Connor, safe space in here. Do you think that that's some of where maybe the church has lost its peculiarity or its uniqueness because we've wanted to fit in so much, even here in the 21st century? Uh, some people have said, oh, we're, we're sure feeling a lot more evangelical because we want to we want to fit in with everyone and stop being called the weird kid on the playground. One hundred percent. I do agree that we we've kind of lost the peculiarity. Um, and and here's an example. Uh, uh, there's a fantastic book written by a non-Mormon historian. I think his name's David Conley. It's called Moroni and the Swastika. It's a fascinating book highlighting church involvement and comments and so forth during World War II and how church leaders and, and were, were counseling members and missionaries and how do we deal with this whole Hitler thing and the Nazis and the war. Very, very enlightening book. And what's really interesting is the contrast that that book shows between, for example, the Jehovah Witnesses who said, no, we are not joining your military and we are not being a part of Hitler youth. No, we are not saluting the Nazi flag. You know, that's an idol. We're not doing that. Well, what happened to their church? Services were shut down. Many Jehovah Witnesses were killed. Like they suffered for it as the Old Testament prophets of old when they would stand up to the Nebuchadnezzars and others who were, you know, challenging them. Um, And so they paid the price, but they were committed to their gospel and their faith, and they were boldly declaring their doctrine. Meanwhile, as, as expressed in that book, you see over and over again, the appeasement, the, the like, oh, 
you're seeking racial purity. Well, we like family history. Let's talk about how we can help you with your genealogy so that you can then go like do all your horrible things. So there was this very much this appeasement. There was a sanitization of removing references to Israel from church curriculum in Germany that was uh, used. There was communications with the Gestapo and the, uh, the uh, to, to basically say, we're law-abiding citizens. Look at the 12th article of faith. We believe in doing whatever the government tells us to, which I believe is a horrible misinterpretation of the 12th Amendment, subject for another day, unless you want to go down that route. But the book is is fascinating uh, because I think it shows as a very clear, stark example. Um, yes, yes, we would have lost lives and probably impeded maybe some of the progress of the church uh, in re reducing access to missionary work and, and those doors being open. So while I, I believe that is an imperative of the church to do missionary work, if it comes at the expense of being uh, bold in our doctrine and standing for what we believe, um, then, then I think uh, I, I think we're losing something. In fact, I think while the doors are open to missionary work, we become less effective at it because who's going to be attracted to a church that that waters down its own doctrine and appeases dictators and doesn't stand for what they believe? Whereas if we take a stand, I think that would be an attractant to a lot of people who are like, "Wow, you know, that, that's that's powerful. That's passion." Another brief example, if you'll indulge me, is after 9-11. Russell M. Nelson, then a, a, a Quorum of the Twelve apostle. He gave this amazing address just as the war in Afghanistan and Iraq was uh, kicking off. And uh, and it was all about peace. It was about golden rule. We need to renounce war, proclaim peace. Uh, it's, a, it's a fascinating, powerful address, very timely, summarizing scripture and saying we need to not support this war. We need to be peacemakers. Uh, we need to abide by the golden rule, not just between ourselves as individuals, but between nations. And so it was kind of this very gentle rebuke of all of the, the the war fervor and fever that was kicking off. Okay, so what happened? Massive backlash from the media. Uh, if you recall, the Dixie Chicks right around then were, were getting slammed because they were speaking out against Bush and the war. Mm -hmm. So the media apparatus comes against the church and Associated Press is like, oh, there, there was this, you know, anti-war speech at the whatever. So the church PR department goes into defense mode and they issue this statement saying, oh, no, uh, President Nelson or Elder Nelson had the statement saying we support our government and we're loyal citizens. And so they directed their attention to like what I believe is like 2% of the overall address that Nelson was giving. And, and it was a missed opportunity, I think, to stand up and say, yeah, the Lord has said renounce war and proclaim peace. It's precise, like Spencer W. Kimball, we are a warlike people, easily distracted from building the kingdom of God. When enemies rise up, we become anti-enemy rather than pro-kingdom of God. Sorry, there's another spiritual Pokemon card that I love to use. <laughs> and, but this is an, like a huge opportunity that the church had to say, yes, this is the doctrine. And I'm sorry, it's unpopular with 98% of you that are just so feverishly wanting to go get revenge on Saddam Hussein, even though they had nothing to do with 9-11. But this is why it matters. And here's the direct, precise opportunity to declare the doctrine. And the church PR team punted, and we lost the, the potency of and the opportunity uh, of, of boldly declaring that doctrine. So so emphatically, yes, I agree with what you said. I, I think we are losing the, our peculiarity and the potency of our doctrine when we're not willing to controversially advance it in, uh, in spite of all the backlash and say, this is what we believe, come what may. Uh, we'll leave a link for that uh, Elder Nelson talk in the show notes. And then also, uh, if you have been a listener of the Cultural Hall for a good long time, uh, back in episode number 166, I actually visit uh, with David 
the author of Mormon and the Swastika. We talk all about some of those things. So if you want some more listening, it's an hour's worth of talking with the author of that particular book that you mentioned. Let's take a quick break. We'll come back in the second block of the Cultural Hall. BestDJinUtah.com. It's been a while since we've had a new one of these, and I apologize for that. It's because I've been so busy DJing events all over the country. Uh, but especially here in Utah, been able to do some great, uh, you know, weddings. I've done a, a prom or two for different listeners of the cultural hall. I love it when you uh, reach out to me at bestdjinutah.com, or uh, you can find the phone number online as well. I would love it if you say, hey, I heard about you on the cultural hall, because maybe, just maybe, I give a cultural hall discount. Uh, all sorts of events. It doesn't have to be a, a wedding. It could be a community event. Maybe it's a ward or youth activity. I'm doing one of those this summer. In fact, just lock the deal down on that. Uh, whatever it may be, if you need music to accompany your event or you just need a great MC, I would love to be able to help you out. You're simply going to need to go to bestdjinutah.com. Hi, friends. Dan the Laptop Man here from PC Laptops. You can get a brand new PC Laptops desktop, and they start at only $29 a month. And it comes with a lifetime warranty. Just check us out at PCLaptops.com. That's PCLaptops.com. Here in the second block of the Cultural Hall, remember, you can always reach out to us. Uh, we're on all of the social medias at the Cultural Hall. You can uh, send a direct message there or whatever the messaging service within that particular social media is. We love that. We get to those as soon as we can. Or you can send a good old-fashioned email. It's contact at theculturalhall.com. Even if you get awoken in the middle of the night and you're like, oh, I need to send an email. That's the best part about email. It won't wake me up, but it gets it off of your chest. Contact at theculturalhall.com. We'd love to hear from you. And we welcome guest suggestions there too, if there's someone you feel like we should chat with. Now, Connor... You fully lean into it when you say freedom fighter. And that that immediately, I think, conjures up in people's minds the the picture of a certain type of individual. Is that what you're intending? Molotov to cocktail, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> you know, uh, some sort of cosplay and you're ready to take arms and, you know, you've got a bunker, but you don't tell anyone about it because you don't want to, you know what I'm saying? There's, there's definitely a, um, a, a vision of what we think a freedom fighter is. What does that mean to you? So it, it means to me that I see injustices all over the place and I feel called by God to go remedy them. And I've been blessed with a certain set of skills, technical marketing, communication, legal background to uh, bring to bear in, in uh, solving problems for people. How I got started in all of this, I used to be a web developer and and that was kind of my pr uh, early profession, but I was newly married. It was 2007 and uh, I was watching on the news, the raid in Texas on the YFZ yearning for Zion compound where Warren yeah. Jeffs and the FLDS had, had kind of moved to try and escape, uh, you know, persecution. And, and so I watched this raid unfold and I was horrified because while Warren Jeffs is a total sleazeball and doing horrible things, uh, first of all, the raid was a false tip. Uh, so they they got uh, permission from a judge to enter based on something that didn't actually happen. So that's mm -hmm. problematic. But the, the more problematic thing that I was responding to was the fact that they separated 400 kids from uh, from their mostly their moms, but from their parents out of a concern that there might be abuse. There was no specific allegations of any particular abuse required by the Fourth Amendment, what's called particularity, so that the government can't just broadly come in and say, we're going to lock all of you up because one of you may commit a crime. 
And so I knew a little something about the foster care system. And in Texas, as in many states, there's drug abuse, sex abuse. There's a lot of problems. So they rip these kids from their parents. They throw them in the foster care system. And I was just horrified at like the due process and, you know, civil liberties concerns. I had no idea what to do. I had never done anything political before. Um, and so I started an online petition, which in 2007 was kind of a new concept and got over a thousand signatures. I got on KSL and other you know, stations, my first TV interview ever. Uh, I'm writing congressman. I'm getting interviewed by the Associated Press. And all of a sudden on my blog, which I had at the time where I, I was updating people about this, I had all these people flooding the comments, especially like FLDS or other polygamous type people. Thank you for standing up. We live in the shadows. Everyone thinks we're kooky. Some of us are, you know, we, <laughs> we do have our problems, but thank you for standing up for us and, and trying to fight for our rights. And I was, I mean, it was a dopamine hit, right? I'm like, oh, like I actually, like I didn't change anything. It's not like the government was like, okay, you know, here's this yeah. guy who did a okay. petition. Well, Here, go back, go back, take yeah, them back yeah. out of foster. Yeah, sure. Right. But it was something and it was standing up and speaking out. And, and so that set me on this path of like, how do I do more of that? And and I started to realize that this was kind of the, the path that God wanted me on because I had been learning and developing all these skills that I didn't care about building websites for stupid companies I didn't care about. But <laughs> hey, when I can apply those for these projects and these you know causes. So like here we are in Utah, we've changed over 100 laws now. I'll give you one example. I, I think the war on drugs is totally ridiculous. I think uh, it's, it's frankly evil. Um, and so we're- We, we should be able fight. to have drugs. Is that what you're saying? Everybody gets their own drugs. Have your drugs. Yeah, you know, LSD at 7-Eleven, you know, do whatever, you, <laughs> you know, within reason. But like, I don't think people should be thrown in jail just because they choose to harm their body or, you know, or positively use a drug in a certain way that is not approved by some bureaucrat in Washington, D.C. So uh, we here in Utah legalize or we're the group that got medical marijuana legalized. It was about a five year campaign and we built a coalition of others to uh, to help us get that done. A uh, fun little side note that we can go down if you want is we had to combat publicly combat the church, yeah. uh, which was kind of an interesting position for me. I would be. like to go there because you're a member of the church. I want to pick, I, don't don't forget where we're at right now, but because we're there right now, let's take on that, that thing with taking sure. on the church. There was very much, it seemed like, this is outsider perspective, someone who's not in the trenches, that uh, that the idea that the church was like, yeah, whatever. I mean, let people decide. And then when it started to look like it was going to be approved, the church went, hold on. We meant let people decide if it meant that this wasn't going to be able to happen. Now that we think that this is going to be able to happen, we've got to put our foot and finger down. Okay. So not quite. Uh, okay. rever uh, going, going back to the earlier history, when we were working through the legislature, trying to get them to pass uh, the, the bill that would legalize medical cannabis, um, the, the, the home teachers, as we like to call them up there, the two government affairs people who represent the church and they'll go meet with the leadership and say, here's what the church wants. And then they get their way. Uh, they came and they, they met with the Senate president and said, we don't want this bill. And so poof, the bill was dead. And they, uh, they came and met with Senator Madsen. Interestingly, he's Ezra Taft Benson's grandson. He was mm. a state Senator for a number of years, and he was the sponsor of this bill. Um, and we were kind of the lead and and I individually was like the point person in developing all the policy and, and writing up most of the, the content. So we're in this room, the four of us and his intern, uh, the senator's intern, the two church representatives, myself and the senator. And they're basically saying, 
you know, hey, we don't want this bill. We don't like it. And we're saying, like, can we get an audience? Can we meet with someone? We've got all this, all these, this research. We've got, like, we'd love to just have a conversation. You know, why are you here to just kill the bill without? And they were just firm. It was, it was a very unpleasant meeting. Um, and obviously, they had their marching orders. They were just sent to deliver a message and not to, like, you know, whatever. So yeah, we had to go to the public and and leverage, as you, I'm sure, know with the church. Many of the times that it changes is from social pressure sure. uh, on particular issues, and so we had to go do that and. We we launched, uh, raised about a million, uh, well, almost a million and a half dollars, launched a public initiative. The polling after our years of working on this had shifted from about 40% support in Utah to 80, uh, uh, like 83% support. So we had been doing a lot of storytelling, a lot of education, and people were like, yeah, this can help grandma with her arthritis or my brother-in-law with his cancer. So public support shifted. We go out to the public, we get the signatures, and we get it on the ballot. Um, and, and so, yes, that's when the negotiations happened and the church needed a golden bridge to walk across, because if we were going to successfully pass this over the church's opposition, that was going to change the perception of the political dynamic and their control in Utah. So, so it was hard for me. I'll, I'll be frank, like, like the, the, the first time that the area uh, president in Utah has ever emailed members of the church to say, here's how you should vote was on that issue. They said, yeah. Prop 2 is bad. We don't like it, blah, blah, blah. We you know, urge you to oppose it. And I'm, I get this email. I'm like, what the hell? Like, can I at least have a conversation with you first? You know, like, and they, they wouldn't talk. I, I emailed, it was Elder Craig C. Christensen and, oh, sorry, you know, here's our position. And, uh, and then they write a, a legal, so they got Curtin McConkie, which is the church's law firm. Uh, they, they got Curtin McConkie to write this legal analysis of Prop 2 evaluating it and all of its problems. And it was like, like, I'm not an attorney, but like, I don't have a, you know, uh, a law degree, uh, but I I do much of what attorneys do. I speak the language and I've kind of self-taught and I just tell my attorney friends, I can do a lot of what you do. I just don't have the school debt to show for it. Sure. But, uh, <laughs> and, and so I'm reading this like legal memo and I'm just disgusted as a non-lawyer at how poorly it's written. I share it with a bunch of my attorney friends and they're like, that looks like a, a 1L intern wrote that thing it was just flawed logic bad legal arguments and so uh, i wrote a, me- a, re- a response from a libertus letterhead and it's like you know rebuttal to the the curtin mcconkie memo and i just pick apart each of the things and then they wrote another one back a rebuttal to the libertus institute so we're getting into this like tit for tat i'm sending this to all the reporters out there and they're covering all the story and 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 meanwhile I'm dealing with a faith crisis, not mine, but many of the people around me who are like, why is my church doing this? Why yeah. are they they telling my grandma that she can't have a medicine that she needs? And so I'm having to be like, no, 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 don't, don't leave the church over this. Don't lose your testimony over this. These are just people doing what they think is right, but they're wrong. And that's okay. You know, we can't have church leaders who make mistakes and do things wrong. But again, our church culture doesn't really support that nuance. Sure. So I'm having to have just tons of these conversations with people who see me as this very public person in Utah as, well, wait a minute, <clears throat> he's the guy fighting the church publicly, but he's a faithful church member. Mm-hmm. So I've got people like calling my bishop and reporting me for opposing sure. the church. And he messaged the stake president. He's like, what do I do with this? And the stake president was like, eh, just ignore it. You know, <laughs> so they're, they're copacetic. They're, you know, they're good guys. Um, so it, it was tough. It was not a pleasant thing to go through. And that's not the only time. I, th- I think that's the biggest time that that's happened. But there have been several other occasions when we've been on opposite sides politically of the church. And 
Um, it's, it's put me in a very interesting position of running this organization. We're not a Libertas Institute. We're not an LDS organization at all. Uh, we're more of like a liberty, free market, conservative type of think tank. And, and so naturally, when the church wants to take a position on something we disagree with, we're going to stand our ground and, and argue what we believe. But that was certainly, I think, the most public time that that's happened. And, and uh, most public in the sense that like everyone was talking about it. It was a big issue. It was all over the news. And uh, the stakes were very high and the emotions were very high too. When we finally went and sat down in the room, it was the speaker of the house, the church's top lobbyist who used to be the speaker of the house like a decade before. Yeah. So kind of a revolving door in Utah politics. It was myself and then my my colleague uh, DJ who was running the, the, the Utah Patients Coalition, the group that we set up to do the, the initiative. So the four of us are sitting in this room and they were tough conversations. We didn't know if it would go anywhere because publicly we've been like punching one another. Sure. And uh, and here we are now in a room. And and so it, it took a little while to like develop trust and find common ground. And so we kind of had a lot of conversations, worked through it. And then as, as the conversations progressed, we forged a kind of negotiated compromise that we then publicly had a big press conference with the governor and everyone else. We're like, okay, hey, we all agree now. Here we go. Uh, but it was a rocky road to get there. And a lot of people's testimonies were, I think, severely harmed as a result. Um, so kind of tragic in a way. Uh, something that I learned from what you said uh, is that it's Libertas instead of Libertas, which I... We're libertarians. I don't care how you pronounce it. <laughs> just do it however you want. Uh, and and then secondarily, you know, just everything sort of confirmed is how I know the behind the doors meetings with the church go and everyone on the front will be like, no, no, that's not how Utah state politics are. And it's like, no, it's 100 percent how this is. I want to take a break when we come back in the third block. There are three questions that we ask everyone who steps into the culture hall. I'll ask those of you. Plus, I got one other fairly poignant question. Also, I want to get into your books and your podcast as well. We'll do that all coming back in the third block. Imagine running a small business today. It's challenging. Imaging and internet presence is an absolute must. Even with that, you're still a small star in a bright cyber universe. Now, imagine you have someone who understands how to get your site designed for your talents and then easily searched by potential clients. Imagine Lennon Design. Whether it's strictly a website or a whole package of logo creation, advertising media, and promotional materials, Lennon Design is your partner in business. They'll test the boundaries of their imagination to create something unique for you. When you need creative, affordable design, let it be Lennon Design. Call 801-699-3022 or visit LennonDesign.com. Here in the third block of the Cultural Hall, remember you can become a Patreon saint of the Cultural Hall. Encourage you to do so. Your financial support allows us to do the now 700 plus episodes that we have done two a week. Name another show that does two hour-long episodes a week. There isn't one, especially in the LDS space. Take that go to patreon.com forward slash the cultural hall. So Connor, um, I, I ask you this question to, to, I don't think there's a right or a wrong answer, but to get kind of an idea of where you're at recently, in the last three or four years, there's been sort of a group of people on Twitter. Um, they call themselves Desnet or Deseret nationalists, right? <laughs> and people that are watching the video here, here's an interesting thing that I find about them is that they, they feel um, founded in their right to fight for the what they deem to be doctrine and 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 um principles of the church right that they need to be the ones because no one else is fighting for these particular things and that is not necessarily what you've said 
uh, that you do as far as that fighting for you, what you do, you feel to be right. Where does it, where does it transcend from? These are the things I fight for to these are the things that, okay, I don't really love that you do this, but go ahead and you do you. Where do you draw that line? Someone on Twitter just a couple of weeks ago created like a, a Desnat list of like all these accounts of so that you could then go block all these people if you don't like Desnats. Mm-hmm. And I was on there. So it was like Jordan Peterson and all these like random people. I can't stand Desnats and, and they don't like me. Anytime we've crossed paths, they'll they'll, you know, criticize me, too. So it's kind of weird that uh, somehow I got lumped in by association. I like this question um, because in a way I can sympathize with the Desnat crowd. Because Connor in his early political career was far more combative. Uh, if you've ever seen that comic, there's a guy like hunched over his computer at night, the computer screen's glowing in his face, his wife comes in the, the door, honey, it's it's late, come to sleep. And he says, not now, someone's wrong on the internet. And, uh, <laughs> and just this, this, this very like moralistic uh, crusade, uh, you know, against any untruth you can find. So where I, where I see the Desnat folks is they, they're, they've, they're basically taking a toxic militaristic approach to what they believe in. And, and it's ineffective. It's alienating. It, it, it's whenever you plant it, like marketing psychology, one-on-one, if you plant a flag and say, this is what I believe you will attract a certain type of people to you and you will alienate other people. Kind of like we talked about before with the church and its missionary work and diluting mm-hmm. the doctrine to, you know, be well-liked or whatever. And, um, and so that's just how humans behave. So yes, the Desnats in planting their flag and saying, this is right, that is wrong. They have attracted a, little, a bit of a crowd and they alienate everybody else. Um, and so I used to be that way. And then I saw, oh, wow, I'm completely ineffective and I'm not changing anyone's hearts and minds or laws as part of my, my work. Um, and so I completely had to shift my approach, reevaluate myself um, and and change how I operate to the point where like I have very strong positions. I have very firm uh, beliefs, but um, I'm willing to have civil discussions and find where the common ground is and then work on those things. And then maybe you're going to persuade me along the way. Maybe I'll persuade you along the way. But it's a much more patient and civil approach. It's a much more collaborative approach to say, like, frankly, I love like a lot of our criminal justice policies we've got done. Uh, is with like ACLU type people up on the hill, people mm-hmm. from totally different end of, of the so-called political left-right spectrum. And I love working with them, even though they're going to work on some abortion issue that I detest next or some LGBT thing or whatever. Um, and so so I like that because by building coalitions with people with diverse backgrounds, I can better accomplish my goal of, of succeeding here or there or elsewhere. Um, and then I make friends along the way. Like I, I'm, you know, far more interesting to have discussions with people who believe differently than just an echo chamber. And uh, I won't use the other word that comes to mind because it's derogatory. But um, so, so that's how I see the difference. Is like, yes, I have strong be- uh, beliefs and passion, and I'll defend them vigorously. Um, you know, and and uh, and and I can always do better. The talk you mentioned that we just heard at general conference. Sometimes on Twitter, I'll be a little bit more snarky than uh, I am in a podcast discussion where we're you know face to face. And I think that's just natural human tendencies when you're behind a keyboard too. Um, but I, I think for me, that's kind of the uh, key difference. Is I want to I want to be civil and collaborative and find areas of agreement. That's kind of my ideal and my focus. The does not crowd is not interested in that. They just want to get scalps and look good in the process. Yeah. It, it, I mean, it's an interesting thing because I think on the one hand, as we were talking about the church, I think that we sort of leaned a little bit more like the church should sort of plant the flag and stay where they're at. And then personally, you're like, well, maybe we should be a little bit more collaborative. I don't know that there's a right answer. I just was curious to see where you, where you, where you personally draw that line and what you feel. And 
And to me, you know, I, I think so long as we're, um, I think that the world has a, a great place for a lot of different types of people, uh, people that look at things different way. And I think that, that when we all work together, and this is my, you know, my utopian look of this is if when we all work together, I think that we're better because of the sum of all of our parts rather than I do it this way. Come along, won't you please? No, I don't sure. think that ever works. Uh, I want to get into some of the projects that you do. You have a, a, a book series, the, as your website would tell me, the very popular Tuttle Twins children series. Tell me about what that is. So we sold over 5 million of these. So, uh, so no big deal. Fair, fair to say that they're uh, pretty <laughs> popular. Um, the, this is a series of children's books that teach uh, kids the ideas of a free society. So we're teaching them things like entrepreneurship, the golden rule, the nature of money, uh, why education matters, uh, how markets work, the dangers of socialism, collectivism versus individualism. So they're fully illustrated. My partner is uh, the illustrator. He's an LDS guy that uh, lives in Washington State, soon to be Tennessee. And um, and so for us, this is really just trying to help parents have uh, help parents have conversations with their kids about real world ideas that they're often not being taught in school and parents struggle maybe to figure out how to talk about these, uh, you know, ideas with their kids. Now we've got a cartoon series that the Harmon brothers are doing with us and Angel Studios, the group behind The Chosen, um, which, you know, we can, that'd be a fun thing. I uh, Chosen is what I've always wanted the church to produce, but we're so like confined to, oh, we can only put in there what he actually said in scripture. And then it's not human. It's not natural. Whereas The Chosen, like you can feel an authentic. Anyways, so sure. so we partner with them. We've got a whole Tuttle Twins cartoon on Angel Studios. Um, and really just trying to better evangelize evangelize the ideas that I believe in by empowering parents to have conversations with uh, with their kids. I, I think, frankly, a lot of the problems in our society are because we have weak social fabric right now with families and communities. And so my ultimate goal is to build social fabric by getting families and, and community groups kind of talking about working together on some of these ideas. I know that it's not like this, but the, the humorous uh, noise in my brain goes... You know, you're sitting down and reading the Tuttle Twins with your kids, and it's like, Jason is a communist. <laughs> and then it's the conversation <laughs> with the kids about what a communist is. I know that's not what it is, but I just think <laughs> it's this. Well, this, don't assume. It might be that, that we have something, though. Uh, this, no, like, yeah, it, again, it's not trying to, like, get kids to, like, play gotcha or weaponize it sure. or whatever. It's, it's, uh, and frankly, what I enjoy most is hearing from uh, adults or uh, parents who are like, okay, we bought the 13 books. Uh, we really liked nine of them. The other ones we're just going to set aside. You know, we we read them. We had some good conversations with our kids and say, well, that's what he believes. And here's what we believe. And but then like, that's great in my mind, because it's like mm -hmm. I would rather see kids raised to be developed into critical thinkers than to be automaton libertarians that just can regurgitate what I wrote in a book. Right. And so if they disagree with me or they have other ideas, more power to them. Uh, your, uh, podcast Sunday musings, we sort of talked about it. What, what's the format? Is it like 20 minutes? Is it an hour? Is it you and somebody else? Is it just, I woke up this morning and as I read Psalms, I thought <laughs> on average, it's about an hour, uh, every Sunday, uh, it started, uh, gosh, a little over a year ago, I was asked to sub, I used to teach gospel doctrine a lot. And so I would substitute teach often. And I had this whole lesson prepared on, I think it was like agency, the war in heaven and all this stuff. That was the particular come follow me. We get to church and this, and they announce, oh, we're canceling the second hour of service because of COVID. And I'm like, so we can sit together in all the pews, but we can't sit together, you know, in another room. And I was kind of irked because 
uh, I had prepared all this material and it's a, a topic that I, you know, find a lot of interest in. So I'm like, ah, screw it. I'm just going to, you know, do my own gospel doctrine. And so I went on Facebook live and a bunch of people liked it. They're like, you should do another one. I'm like, oh, okay. And, and so it just has turned into like this, you know, weekly third hour of church that, uh, that we lost just talking about, uh, you know, my challenge as a gospel doctrine teacher was always how deep can you go? Sure. Because there's a lot of people at the milk level and we no longer really have the gospel principles class where those people can go. And then they always felt awkward going there. Cause then they look like they're the ignorant Mormons or whatever. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And so now we're all lumped in. It's like a public school class. You got to teach to the middle. And so the advanced people are bored and the people who are at the bottom are confused and, Oh, it's just not awesome. So, so the podcast I think is a little bit more meaty, really trying to focus on some deeper stuff for those who are more interested in in that. Yeah. And for my money, the gospel principles class was always the way to go. <laughs> I always loved that. Right. Because for me, it, it was just so basic, which I loved, right. It was, it seemed like a refresher and I loved the eagerness and the, and the, the um, genuine approach of those that found themselves in that class, normally new members sure. or people who were coming back. And I just, for me, it was like, yeah, I, I like the nuts good, and bolts. Yeah. yeah I like yeah. me a good gospel doctrine where we're talking about like uh, you're calling an election or you're, you know, <laughs> collab. Yeah. But, but for my money, the gospel principle, is there anything we've only got a few more minutes with you. Is there anything that, um, while you have the mic, both literally and, uh, uh, metaphorically, that you wish that people either knew about you or that you want to lead people towards or anything like that, that you would uh, invite people to do? No, I, I think I've, I've spoken my piece. If I had anything else in mind, it's basically like my perspective on on things, the podcast, the book, the, the, the more LDS oriented books that I've done is um, I, I'll put it this way. We, we talked earlier about the Pharisees, how we like our checklist and we criticize them while falling prey to the same thing. Mm -hmm. And I, I think also of like the Israelites, how, you know, how could you worship a golden calf? How could you be so stupid? We're so sophisticated. We would never do anything like that. And so where I fall and where my thoughts lead me to as a member of the church today is, is trying to identify how are we Pharisaical? How are we idolatrous? Mm. Uh, it could be like Spencer W. Kimball said that we're idolatrous from a war standpoint, that we lean on the arm of flesh rather than, you know, depending on God. So that could be an answer. Um, so, so a lot of what I try and do is like, I feel like a lot of our church culture has encumbered the gospel, just like early church culture did and leading to the apostasy. Um, I feel like it's very easy for us as saints to just, you know, have our checklist. I'm a you know, I go to the temple, I pay my tithing and feel like things are okay when I feel like there's a lot of things that aren't okay um, and that we need to be talking about and doing more. Um, and, uh, and and so that's, the, you know, if any call to action I have or any parting thought, it's just that, like, I think we as members, uh, I'll frame it this way. There's the whole um, sealed portion of the Book of Mormon. Mm -hmm. We don't talk about that at all. Yeah. We don't we don't talk about the fact that in the Doctrine and Covenants, we are under condemnation still for treating lightly the things that we have received. That's there for the early saints. More recent members of the church have said that that condemnation still exists until we repent and remember the, the new and everlasting covenant. And so for me, it's like, are we okay with mediocrity, like spiritual mediocrity and just doing, or can we aspire for more? And can we talk about how we can get out from under that condemnation? You know, I think this is why Benson and Hinckley and others were trying to like flood the earth with the Book of Mormon and get a lot more people uh, awake and aware. So, so I, I don't know. I, if we're grading ourselves on a curve, sure, we're getting an A because all the other, you know, people out there are apostatizing or wrong or whatever. 
but if we're graded in a in a kind of objective form, I think we're you know maybe getting a C as Latter Day Saints. Like we're doing yeah. a lot of good things. I don't want to sure. discount that, but we're missing out on a lot. And and so I would just invite your listeners and you and, and myself more than anyone to like. I think we should be talking more as, as saints of like, how can we aspire for for more? Because the Lord is ready to give us more. He's said again and again. Um, and I'd love it. I'm curious. I, I want to know what more there is out there. But I feel like we have a culture that's just sipping at the milk and and is okay with that. And and I'm not. And I sense I've had many conversations with others who are not. Some of them are leaving the church, still yeah. very religious, still very Mormon, still very believing. But they're just like, this institution is, is you know, decaying. From within, and I don't share that perspective necessarily, but um, but I would love if we could have more robust discussions, and whether in church or on podcasts or out, you know, I don't know what that looks like. That just to kind of finally communicate, that's how I think, that's what I'm kind of focused on and most desirous for. So if anyone's out there and wants to chat or uh, or <laughs> connect, easy to find online. Search for Connor Boyack, you'll find all my stuff and and uh, see what comes of it. Yeah, we'll leave links for that in the show notes. There are three questions that we ask everyone who steps into the culture hall. I'll ask those of you now. The first question is, is do you have a calling right now? And if so, what is it? I do have a calling. I am a specialist in the young men's. Uh, I've got a 13, I'm going on 14-year-old boy. So I'm in the teacher's quorum with him and having a blast. If you could pick a calling for yourself, either one that exists or make one up, what would you pick? A uh, gospel doctrine teacher. It's It's my love and done it many times and I hope to do it again in the future. Is there a particular uh, like year of gospel doctrine that you like, or do you just like the class? And um, you know, I, I hated the old. I didn't hate, but like I, I disliked most the Old Testament. Uh, but when I taught it last go around through that cycle, I, I came to appreciate that there's so much richness there that I, I think when we focus on the little stories that we're all familiar with, we miss out on. And so just trying to find the the depth, the meaning in these stories. Um, but but if I had to pick one, I'd be the Book of Mormon. I uh, I think that book is. We, we think of it as uh, another testament of Christ, and it rightly is, and it testifies of Christ and all the rest, but it's also a warning manual about how to destroy societies. We talk about secret combinations and pride and uh, mammon and, and idolatry and all the rest, um, and I think we would do well to, again, re repent and remember the new covenant, get out from under condemnation, so I, I most love the Book of Mormon. The last question, we ask you to interpret it however you may, but the question remains, what is your favorite part of your faith? My favorite part of my faith is kind of daily guidance. Other people are seeking these new agey whatever and coaches and finding meaning where they can. I think we as humans innately desire meaning and identity and connecting with the divine. And, and so you see a lot of people meandering down these other paths doing that. I love that our faith is, it's holistic, it's substantive, it is, um, it's not just a Sabbath thing. It very much is kind of a code for uh, daily living. And so I, I like that it's not just this like theological set of beliefs and set of doctrines and yeah, okay, I believe that, but I just ignore it on every other day and do whatever I want. Um, I, I love the the richness of it and how uh, any question you have, anything you're struggling with, uh, you know, there's some kind of answer there and guidance that you can get. And so that, that served me well. And, and I think it's what is top of mind for me that I love the most. Nice. We hope that this episode has nourished and strengthened your body, that if you're not healthy enough to listen this week, that you'll be healthy enough to listen next week, and that when the time comes, you will be able to travel home in safety. In the meantime, Chris at Alpine Lakes Travel, Rick McGee, Debbie Wanless, and Chocolate Cake Bites Podcast, we'll be saving a seat for you on the back row of the Cultural Hall. Save me a seat, it's sure to be neat. On the back row, we really gotta go on the Cultural Hall show.